Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Viking Press, publisher of Emily Alone, the newest novel by the great Stuart Onan. Raves the Boston Globe, quote, what a relief. No vampires, zombies, fashionistas, shopaholics, no child abuse, alternate universes, cyber anything, and no violent crime. Mark Onan's lovely, lyrical, leisurely paced portrait of 80-year-old Emily Maxwell, end quote. That's right, folks. This is a novel with an 80-year-old female protagonist. How many novels like that have you read recently? Do you have to be 80 years old or elderly to read it and enjoy it? Absolutely not. In fact, you should probably read it if you're not elderly, because it will expand your understanding of what it means to be human and strengthen your ability to empathize with people who are not you. That's what good fiction does, and this is good fiction. Raves the LA Times, quote, Stuart Onan has become a spokesperson in modern fiction for the regular person, the working person, and now the elderly, end quote. Emily Alone, available from Viking Press. Go and get it. It's a book. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. I'm Brad Listy. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Wherever you happen to be, however you happen to be doing it, are you listening on headphones? That's great. Are you listening on speakers while you perform some sort of menial task? Are you folding clothes? Are you ironing clothes? Are you doing some light calisthenics? It doesn't matter to me. I appreciate the fact that you're tuning in. Thank you. Uh, some orders of business here at the outset that I want to get off the table. First of all, I got to plug the show's website, www.otherpeoplepod.com. All news and info about the show can be found there. Also, follow us on the Twitter, at otherpeoplepod. You can also find other people on Facebook. The show has a Facebook presence. And here's a thought. I want to share this with you. I want to pitch it to you as at least a possibility. If you like this show, if you like book culture, if you like literature, if you like reading, there's a way to support this show. And here's what I offer. It's a little bit unorthodox. Instead of just asking for cash, I'm going to say this. If you want to help, you can sign up for what's called the TNB Book Club. It's the book club, the official book club of The Nervous Breakdown, which is my online culture magazine and literary community. Here's how it works. You sign up. It's $9.99 a month. 
for that $9.99, you get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Think about that. $9.99, that's less than the cost of a book. And you get a book every month. So I'm not asking you for money for nothing. I'm asking you to get a book a month. 10 bucks a month for a book. You spend 10 bucks a month on gum. So if you want to support this show, join the TNB Book Club. Just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. Look for the book club tab in the menu bar. Click it and sign up. It's easy, and I would appreciate it like you wouldn't believe. So let's push that aside and get on to some storytelling. Here's what's been happening. I was just in New York for a couple of days. I just got back uh, late last night, landed, get off the plane, come home, sleep the sleep of angels. It was great. I don't usually sleep that well, but I was exhausted, and last night was one of those nights where I slept wonderfully. So I would have to say that the highlight of my New York trip was my buddy telling me that he and his wife are going to be having a baby, their first baby. We go to a restaurant. We're sitting up at the bar, a couple of guys, a couple of old friends. First thing he says to me, I'm going to be a father. What do I say to him? I say, welcome to a state of permanent fear. That's what I usually say to my friends whenever they tell me that they're going to be parents for the first time. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm one year in, a little more than one year, uh, one kid, and that's kind of my life now. And what I'm really saying, I'm not trying to be too dark. What I'm really saying is that when you have a child, everything changes irrevocably. That's probably obvious. But, you know, you go into this state where uh, you're constantly afraid. You're constantly, in some underlying way, concerned about the welfare of your child. And so, you know, yes, it's a state of permanent fear, but what it really is is a state of extreme permanent love and concern. And so it's a positive thing, ultimately. The stakes are raised. Life means more. And, uh, yeah. So congratulations to them. And what else about New York? The sheer humanity of it, the bodies, the togetherness, the street-level action, the, the, uh, the cab driver screaming at the cop. That was a big one. I was in a cab. We were driving. All of a sudden, there was a female police officer standing in the crosswalk. She was directing traffic. My driver wanted to pass. She would not let him pass. He went ballistic. He went absolutely apeshit. He started screaming at her, telling her to fuck off, telling her to get a real job, telling her she was ugly. And what was even more uh, extraordinary about this exchange was the fact that the cop started screaming back at him. It was a two-way street. It was a shouting match. Uh, it was a very intense level of vitriol. There was a middle finger. There was the cop reaching into her pocket and removing what I believe was some sort of ticket. I was I was surprised she wasn't reaching for a billy club or mace, to be honest with you. And uh, then my cab driver just gunned it and drove away. I thought we were going to get followed. Didn't happen. Uh, he cussed for about another half a mile. And then, it, you know, eventually he cooled off. I put my seatbelt on as we were driving away. Uh, so that was interesting. Then, uh, speaking of, of transportation, I was on the subway and I was sitting on the subway. I was headed out to Brooklyn and there was a little boy, probably three or four years old, suddenly, violently vomits everywhere. Very disgusting, very unsettling. I felt terrible for him. I felt terrible for his poor mother who was trying desperately to contain the situation, but could not contain the situation. So, what happened? Well, everybody on the car kind of wanted to scatter, but there's only so far you can go on a subway car. So I just sat there. I watched it happen. I started to feel a little ill. I closed my eyes. I started thinking about Contagion, that new Steven Soderbergh movie. 
I started thinking about, uh, you know, some sort of Ebola type situation. I, I tried to control my breathing. I breathe through my nose infrequently. And, uh, you know, it's hard enough when you're on a subway car to keep your mind off of communicable diseases. And then you see something like this happen and it, you know, it really, really starts to go into overdrive. So I hope that little boy is okay. And I, uh, you know, I feel bad for the guy, but it was, uh, it was sort of a, an intense experience, a city experience, a human experience. Also the Occupy Wall Street protests. I did get to see that. I did get to hang around a little bit in Liberty Plaza with the Occupy Wall Street protesters. I was, for a brief time, a member of that protest movement. Uh, There were lots of congas down there. That was the scene. I was down there at night. There were sleeping bags. There were acoustic guitars. There were cigarettes. There there could have been joints. I I don't know exactly. But there were a lot of people down there. Uh, There was some, some media coverage here and there. I saw some cameras. And, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm generally in favor of, uh, of this movement. I think they have a point. And uh, I do want to say, though, that I was watching the news last night because, you know, one of the big uh, memes that I'm seeing out in social media is that this story is not getting enough coverage, that this movement has not yet reached uh, a large enough uh, critical mass in order to get the mainstream media to cover it. Or I guess you could say maybe there are people with lots of money who don't want the story to get as much coverage as it maybe deserves to get. And so anyway, I'm watching, I believe, Lawrence O'Donnell last night, and he was interviewing Michael Moore. Michael Moore is down there with the protesters, trying to generate some publicity for the movement, get the cameras on him. And so I'm watching this, and he's surrounded by all these protesters, and I see these protesters doing this thing with their fingers. Did anybody see this? Like instead of clapping, they're wiggling their fingers like it's some sort of magic. And it was weirding me out. I got to be honest with you. I was like, what is this? Is this sort of like the new snapping thing like the beatniks used to do? Instead of clapping, they would snap. Now Michael Moore's talking and there's some girl to his right who's just wiggling her fingers and making this face. And it was making me just feel, uh, I wanted her to go away. And the reason I wanted her to go away is because she was making the whole thing seem too weird. And I was thinking about mainstream America, people who might be on the fence or who might not be paying attention. And I'm thinking, you don't want this movement to seem weird. You want your movement to seem normal and mainstream. So just clap. Don't wiggle your fingers. Just clap normally. Right? Maybe I'm uh, analyzing it too much. Anyway, uh, what else happened in New York? Oh, Jeff Bezos, head honcho at Amazon, gave his big presentation and announced the launch of the Kindle Fire. The Kindle Fire competition to Apple's iPad, and it's priced at $199. So it's half of what an iPad costs, I believe. And uh, it's supposedly going to be big competition for Apple, maybe the first big competition for Apple in this tablet vertical, this tablet market. And, you know, I could sit around talking about how that affects ebooks and all the rest, but that's going to be talked about plenty. What I want to discuss and what struck me when I was watching the coverage of this uh, product rollout is, you know, everybody talks about how inventive and innovative uh, Apple has been on the technology front. And they certainly have across a variety of different media. They've done extraordinary things and changed the way people live. No doubt about that. And one of the other things they've done is they have changed the way products are rolled out 
uh, particularly high pro, you know, high profile technology products because Bezos was essentially giving a Steve Jobs presentation. The aesthetic is the same. I see the same thing with this uh, Facebook conference thing that Mark Zuckerberg was doing the other day. All of these technology conferences all follow that same Steve Jobs template where you have this stage. It's sparsely decorated. There's usually like a solid background, be it black or white or whatever. And then you have this like uber nerd come out onto the stage with this product. And he's very small against this giant backdrop and the media is there. And then maybe there's some sort of like really slick, futuristic PowerPoint presentation or video presentation type deal. Uh, You know, it's just the way that things are rolled out right now. And what I started thinking about is how funny it would be, uh, and I wonder how effective it would be if, like, an author, if an author actually had these kinds of resources, could somehow mock that up and do a product rollout similar to the Jobs, Bezos, Zuckerberg model, where an author just walks out onto stage with, say, uh, a dog-eared trade paperback copy of his or her own book and invites the media, maybe a few book bloggers, maybe some friends, There's a smattering of applause. Would that work? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, uh, what else? I think that's it. I think all I got to say has been said. I think we should get on with the show. Today's guest, Ron Curry Jr., Uh, I can't say enough good things about this guy. He is, to me, one of the best and brightest young writers going. His first book, uh, a a story collection called God is Dead, won him the New York Public Library's uh, Young Lions uh, in Fiction Award. I believe that's what it's called. Ron Curry is a young lion, a young literary lion. And then his, uh, his second book was his debut novel, It's called Everything Matters, and it was one of those books that uh, generated a lot of critical acclaim. Janet Maslin, I believe, of the New York Times really raved about the book. She called Curry, quote, startlingly talented, end quote. I think he is. He's one of those guys I read, and I'm jealous. I'm like, damn it, he did it. That's it. Um, I believe uh, Janet Maslin compared him favorably to Kurt Vonnegut. He does things in fiction that are surreal, but yet they work very gifted. They're the kind of books you read and you want to pass along. And I think you're going to really like hearing what he has to say. And 
and the forthcoming. Is there something forthcoming? I mean, I get bits and pieces online. Uh, I know you. Yeah, were- it's, it's it's forthcoming. <laughs> I'm working on a rewrite right now, and actually, I'm going to be talking with my editor about it after I get off the phone with you. Uh-huh. How's that going? Yeah, it's going well. It's uh, you know, I've run into over the course of the last three years, I've been working on this. Um, you know, I hit that, that moment that I think happens to just about every writer sooner or later where, you know, it was the first time I had struggled really. Um, and I didn't know what to do with it because it had never happened before. I mean, what do you mean? Like you really like had like a super easy time or not super easy. I don't want to oversimplify it, but you just, you really had never run into creative resistance before. Not in this way and not, uh, not the sort of consistent, um, recurring difficulty that I've had this time around. I mean, it, it may be a bit of revisionist history too, to be perfectly honest with you. I mean, you, know, you can look back on writing Everything Matters and and I, in my mind, I have it as this sort of idyllic um, and nearly effortless thing. And actually just the other day, I went through some emails that I was sending out around that time and realized that that wasn't the case at all. Um, that there were some difficult times that I just sort of conveniently forgot about. Sure. So it's not as though it's been completely effortless uh, at any point. But for whatever reason, this time around, it was much more difficult. And uh, I wrote an entire manuscript, actually, the first two years of this three-year period that I'm talking about, and, and ended up, I didn't throw it away, but I definitely shelved it. Um, and whether or not I'll make use of it, I don't know. But I definitely need to take a, a good chunk of time away from it and get some perspective that you can't get in just a month's time or two months' time. And I finally realized that and so sort of very quietly put it away. And what ended up happening was I was working on this manuscript, um, and struggling with it, you know, I'd, I'd have a good day and then I have two bad days in terms, just in terms of how I felt about it. Cause the process for me is really intuitive. And, uh, so what do you so mean there? What do you mean there? Do you see, you mean no outlines? Like you're basically working, making it up day to day as you go along. Oh yeah. Yeah. I never outline. Um, you, you know who it was who said that, uh, you know, and this is a metaphor for writing. It said that you only need to see as far as your headlights to get where you're going when you drive at night. Um, that's sort of the way that I feel about the writing process. It's always the way it's been for me. You know, I think it tends to produce messy manuscripts, in particular first drafts, but I, but that's worth it to me um, as a trade-off for not losing any of the vitality that I think it has. And, you know, I've never made the, I've never actually outlined before, so I'm not certain that that would happen, that there would be a loss of vitality or, or spontaneity. But that's my instinct, and so I've never really done it. I just kind of fly by the seat of my pants. Yeah, I'm the same and way. I, like, I can't, uh, I can't sit down and do like a detailed outline. I sort of wish. I wonder if it would be just like if my life would be less painful if I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> have you Have you tried it? I mean, yeah, it just doesn't work, you know, like it, or like it hasn't worked yet. And then I talk to these people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, I live and die by my outline, and I, I definitely don't always adhere to it, but you know, I can't go without it. And, Right. I have that in my head, but I, I, I get what you're saying about the headlights and uh, the fun of waking up and kind of taking it day by day and making it up as you go. There's something great about yeah, that. Those moments, I think that those moments of surprise, and, and you know, it probably happens for you too. I mean, all this stuff is percolating in your subconscious, and, and so while it may surprise your, your, your conscious mind, I think that it's always working in the background, and, and with any luck, that moment of surprise, if it actually works, and if it's... Um, if it's sort of organic to what it is that you're doing and makes sense, then that moment of surprise will be transmitted to the reader. And that's the hope for me. Um, you know, whether or not it's true, I don't really know, but, uh, but that again, is it sounds great. 
<laughs> Sounds genius. Well, you know, I should say, That's like, I'm gonna, sort of I should confess uh, on the front end of this show, I should I should let you know, you know I'm a huge fan of yours. I think uh, I think you're super talented. Uh, you know, and I think whatever it is uh, in a fiction writer, I really think you've got it. I, I don't. Uh, it's sort of comforting in a way, considering uh, how much I admire your work to hear that you struggle the same way as the rest of us. <laughs> uh, really? And, yeah, no, it does. And it, because I think that, uh, you know, you read somebody's work and you go, wow, this is super strong. Uh, and you automatically assume uh, that somehow they have it easier than you. Uh, and Well, we never we never give over that impression, do we? I mean, I, I certainly have that with, with reading a lot of what I read, in particular, a lot of contemporary fiction these days. Um you know, I, I don't think I'll ever get over the notion, even though I know well, I, I know better. I know that it's never easier for anybody. Um, but, you know, what I always try to keep in mind is that I'm reading something that was polished over and over and over again, something that was troubled over and, and you know, something that in all likelihood was a pretty tremendous slog from time to time. Well, that's the and thing. That's the whole trick. That's the whole trick, right? Is, 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 no, you have to obscure the scaffolding. That's one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it, and the bigger aspect, in my mind, is making it appear effortless. That's the trick. Right. Um, and and you know better. And so, you know, you would think that for those of us who are actually working writers who are engaged in this on a daily basis, that that lesson would sink in. And so we wouldn't have this feeling of, I don't know what you call it, inadequacy or, or whatever when we're reading other people's work. I mean, we know better. Yeah, it's strange. And I think sometimes the irony is that the better the work, you know, the, the, the bigger and stronger uh, and more complex or whatever you want to call it, uh, oftentimes it's it's the result of more agony, not less. You know, it's it's that the writer... Think so? Well, I think, I think it's often the case. I mean, you look, I know that you're a huge David Foster Wallace fan. I've gleaned that. Sure. Um, and, you know, nobody has a, you know, a bigger brain than that guy. I mean, he's just such a bright, yeah. such a bright guy. And yet... You read about his struggles uh, on so many fronts, and particularly creatively, and how much agony he went through just to write. And you know, you go, Jesus! Like no one, no one is spared except for, I guess, a you know, I don't know who out there writes easily. I remember reading once that uh, who was it? Uh, Arundhati Roy wrote The God of Small Things in like one mm-hmm. shot. You know, she didn't revise at all. And uh, see, that's the stuff that really gets to me. Oh. You do hear those stories, right? And you're like, fuck you. You're kidding me? <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. So much bitterness. But I think that... And, that- then, and then it also, I mean, for me, it also gives me, when I when I hear those stories, I also have fantasies about doing the same thing myself. You know? Well, like, I'm going to sit down and finish this manuscript in two weeks and it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be it's going to be gold. Uh, and it never quite works out that way. But, but speaking to Wallace, though, I mean, I think... You know what you're what you're saying about him, the struggles that he encountered, especially with his writing. I think that he, you know, his great strength and his great weakness was his self consciousness, both personally and creatively. Um, I mean, he have you read the Tale King? No, I haven't gotten to it yet. No, you know, he he sort of continued on with that theme that's sort of running in the background of, of the larger overarching themes that he started with infinite jest and sort of continued in the pale King where, you know, um, he was famously a very heavy sweater, sweat all the time. And, and this was part of the reason why he always wore these bandanas wherever he went. Um, and there's a very long passage in the pale King about a character who sounds suspiciously like David Foster Wallace, um, who suffers from heavy sweating from an early age. And it, it becomes sort of the, the defining characteristic of his personality. It dominates everything that he does. Um, and I think that that self-consciousness in Wallace 
you know, he mined it for his fiction and he, and he mined it profitably while it also, you know, was a tremendous burden to him personally. Well, yeah, he just couldn't get away. I mean, he, he almost couldn't let himself get away with anything and the level, uh, I don't even know how to articulate this, but when you read him, you're like the, the intelligence in his own, uh, interior monologue and his own self-consciousness and analysis of himself it, it just runs so deep, you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, I mean, he was clearly, you knew immediately whether you liked what he did or not, whether you liked the way that he used the language or, you know, how comprehensive he was sort of exhaustingly comprehensive, obviously, whether or not you liked that, you had to acknowledge on turning the first few pages of any of his books that you were dealing with a world-class intellect. I mean, there's no question about it. Right. Um, and you know, I don't think anybody could take that away from him regardless of how they felt about his fiction. No, and, and, you know, and it was matched with, you know, a big heart. You know, I think sometimes that's not the case. I think you have these people who are world-class intellects who might not have uh, the ability to introspect or delve into themselves the way that he could. And, and, and sure. then also be, I also feel like he might have, you know, with his self-awareness, might have been aware of how bright he was and how, um, you know, he could, how easily he could leave behind uh, the common man. Yeah, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, right, uh, right. he was sensitive to that. You know, he was always but trying. He was, to... he was acutely uncomfortable at that notion, though. You know, at the, I mean, even though he had to know that, and and probably was being somewhat disingenuous and not acknowledging that he was smarter than the average bear. Um, I mean, he was so uncomfortable with the very notion of it. Right. Um, all the evidence to the contrary, notwithstanding. You know, I mean, it was a tremendously complex person and really compelling from my point of view. Um, but I, you know, conversely, I can understand why, particularly with his writing, it would sort of exasperate people. It's just, you know, I respond to it, but, but, uh, I can understand why people wouldn't, or why they just, you know, sort of throw it across the room in, in uh, exhaustion, you know? Sure. Um, well, but, what... you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, from my perspective, again, one of the things that I trouble over, um, personally when I'm writing is especially now that I have at least a perceived audience. I don't know how long you you toiled before you uh, before you published your first book, but for me it was always uh, I was certainly always writing for myself. And when I was you know when I was working in kitchens and and writing on the side for years and years and and never even I mean I literally couldn't give my stories away, you know. Um, and so I never imagined that I would have an audience of any kind other than myself. And there's definitely a freedom that goes along with that. And now that uh, and I certainly want to sound like I'm complaining because I'm not. I love being published, and I love hearing from readers, and I love the fact that my words are out there in one form or another. Um, but it comes with certain creative and, and psychological complications that have been tough to navigate at times. And I think that's sort of what we're touching on here when we're talking about Wallace and his work, too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of an inevitable consequence of being published, I think. Um, you know, however obscure <laughs> we may be, especially in terms of pop culture at large. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the thing I was talking to, uh, I think it was uh, Johnny Evison, and we were just talking about audience size for literary fiction and what one can mm -hmm. hope for. You know, what does, what does success look like in terms of uh, actually landing a readership? What's the ceiling on it? And right. it's tough to know. I mean, I don't know if anybody can really quantify that. Uh, and obviously there are books that are kind of the, the great exceptions that have these big, huge audiences, and it's sort of the dream of everybody, but... For the right, it, it, well, it's relative, though, right? I mean, you know, like everything else, like the man said, it's, it's all relative, and it's, you know, we were actually I was just having a conversation with somebody the other day about um, which 
book was it? Not Water for Elephants, but uh, um, The Lovely Bones, the film adaptation of The Lovely Bones, which, as far as I know, was sort of a, a flop in terms of like what does and does not constitute a, a successful film. Um, but that was a huge book. I don't know what the sales numbers were, but in terms of, you know, looked at from the perspective of a book person, that thing was huge. And the what's considered a, a good-sized audience in Hollywood, obviously, is different from what's considered a good-sized audience in the book world. Uh, and, you know, there's uh, a writer-director who I know, um, who I've worked with on some of, uh, you know, the early stages of adapting one of my books, who originally wanted to be a novelist, and he and I asked him what happened to that aspiration. And, and he explained to me in a really sort of compelling and convincing way that as an artist, and from an artistic standpoint, not from a financial standpoint or, or anything else, or a commercial standpoint, he wanted to reach the widest possible audience. That was his concern. Uh, and, and from his perspective, it made the most sense to go into film with that in mind. Um, and it's it's hard to argue with that. Really. Yeah, it's increasingly so. And uh, just out of curiosity, this is the adaptation of Everything Matters, and and that's happening. I mean, is that in production? Wow. Well, no, no, no. Define happening. Yeah, no. It's, I was going to say, if that happened, you've, you've jumped through a lot of hoops. You know, if that's uh, but that's just kind of like pre-production or sort of noodling. It's in that phase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah lots of discussion. Um, some discussion of of how to approach this gameplay. This is you know. Everybody's got uh, got a bunch of different projects going at the same time, and, and even even if there's real forward momentum with these these sorts of things, my experience is that the the, the progress is glacial at best. Yeah, no, it's it's. I live in Los Angeles, and uh, you know, I'm sort of immersed in in that world, whether I like it or not. And it's just a, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's un- unbelievable that anything gets made, let alone something good. Like whenever a good movie gets made, uh, it's almost a miracle. You know, there's so many people who've got their hands all over it. And that, I think that process is, is why a lot of writers become novelists, <laughs> even if it's a tougher road. I mean, just to not have to deal with that many cooks in the kitchen is... Uh, not having to not having to, um, to answer anybody else or having to collaborate. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like, uh, it's a whole different animal. and It's a whole different uh, you know, challenge. You know, I feel like writing is hard enough and then you get through it and you got to go through all that, so... <laughs> Uh, well, I'm curious to know, uh, you know, we talked a, a little bit about uh, past books and, and current projects and stuff, but uh, I'd love to hear more about what uh, your early writing career was like or how you came up, how you grew up, and, you know, how you got into this racket. From the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, you know, or you could start there for sure. Yeah, well, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. It's, you know, like a lot of writers I know, and maybe maybe like you, um, I was writing stories pretty much from the time I was able to, um, from the time that I had the language to do so. And, you know, it was, when I look back on it now, what I realized is <clears throat> what I was trying to accomplish at that time, well, the reason, the impetus behind writing these stories in the first place was trying to recreate the, the sort of immersion that I got from reading the stories that I got my hands on back then. And I read voraciously. Um, it was such a formative and transformative experience for me reading that I wanted to, I wanted to be involved in it actively, I guess. Um, so I started writing stories and I wrote, I wrote all sorts of different things. And, you know, again, like a lot of, a lot of novelists, I think I, you know, I dabbled in, uh, I wrote plays and I wrote comic books, even though I was a terrible, terrible artist. And, um, 
and I wrote a lot of short stories and a lot of them were terribly derivative and, um, but they're also a lot of fun. And how, now how yeah. old were you? How old, like give us a, give me an age range. Like were you like 12 when you were doing this or 15? Well, earlier, earlier. Um, in fact, I have a, uh, story that I wrote in first grade that's, uh, that my mother had framed up shortly after the publication of my first book. So much to my chagrin, this story, which was very late postmodern and, and, you know, uh, even at that age, it's called the story. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's perfect. It's good stuff. Um, so yeah, even at that, it's so first grade, that'd be what? Six. Is that right. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty precocious of you. Something like that, I guess. I mean, you know, the funny thing is the, you know, from a strictly nuts and bolts perspective, the language really isn't that bad, even for, even for a first grader. Um, but you know, I had some, uh, I had some developing to do before. <laughs> so what was the story about? What was just, uh, can... <laughs> you're not going to make me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, give me some, give us some details at least main character. Okay, well, it actually, yeah, it actually, uh, you know, um, this is quite autobiographical and it actually speaks to what I'm saying now about the reason why I got into to writing stories in the first place. And it's very, the very bare bones, um, breakdown of the story was, uh, it's about a little boy who uh, has this book that actually comes to life. The book is anthropomorphized and it actually talks to him and keeps him company. So, um, and then he tries to convince everybody that he knows. And of course his, uh, his solar system of people is quite small. So it ends up being just his mother and father. He tries to convince them that this book is actually sentient and speaks to him. And of course he can't. Um, and, but nevertheless, even though he can't convince anybody else of the, you know, the fact that this book came to life, he's, uh, he's very happy with it and content with his company. So that's the story. Wow. Well, that's yeah, like, right. that's it right there. I mean, that, that says it all. I mean, your destiny is almost carved into <laughs> that thing. I never had to write another story after that. No, it was like, you know, that was it. So now you were, and you were, uh, raised in Maine. I mean, born and raised, is that correct? Or? Yep. Yep. In central Maine, timber country. So, so it's, it's much different from, uh, what most people from away, as we say, think of when they think of Maine, which is, you know, lots of boats and, and lighthouses. That's not where I grew up. I grew up inland, um, within the, or in the shadow of the Scott paper, uh, uh toilet paper mill, actually. Um, I didn't, I didn't realize I, that was, for, that was up there. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a great swath of, of Maine is, uh, you know, from about from where I live, which is Waterville, central Maine, um, north to Canada, that's all timber country and always has been. Now, is this anywhere near the Appalachian Trail? Because I, I hiked the Appalachian Trail all the way through Maine. Uh, oh, you went all the way? I went all the way, yeah, uh, back in right. 1997. So I spent some time there. It was, August. It was beautiful, yeah, beautiful country. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually the Appalachian, I don't know how closely it passes to, to Waterville. It's fairly close. I think it goes through the Belgrade area, which is like, you know, 20 miles from Waterville. Um, so that's, I mean, a lot of that country that you saw on the AT is, is sort of where I grew up. Wow. Um, and you know, it's fairly remote and, and, uh, and now, you know, it's, it's, uh, like a lot of mill towns in, in New England, Waterville, where I still have an apartment and don't really live there anymore, but you know, I get my mail there. Um, so where are you living? Fairly well, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, spent a lot of time in Portland, actually, which is the, the biggest city in Maine. It's about 65,000 people, you know, the one that most people know. Yeah, it's a nice, it's a nice town. 
have you been? Yeah, I have. I mean, when I was on my way up to the AT up there, I uh, I stopped off. My friend's uh, parents had a place outside of Portland, and I loved it. Yeah, Portland's cool. It's very funky. One of the interesting things about Portland, from my perspective, is that I mean, it's a it's a big, big foodie town, which is sort of counterintuitive. Um, you know, amazing restaurants here, and and there never seems to be a saturation point, despite the fact that there's only sixty odd thousand people. Um, the appetite for for more and better and more varied food never seems to be uh, satisfied here. Um, and it's just, I think Portland, you know, insofar as I know anything about the food world, I think Portland is definitely making a name for itself, um, certainly nationally. Um, so that's uh, one of the interesting aspects of Portland. But it's also a very artsy town. Um, you know, I think that pretty much every every kid with an artistic sentiment uh, or, or, or um, you know, sort of personality who's from Maine and from the hinterlands, like where I grew up, usually ends up with a stint in Portland, if not staying here for the, you know, for the balance of his or her life. Well, it almost sounds, I mean, not to, not to be too simplistic about it, but it almost sounds like the East coast version of Portland, Oregon. I mean, is there like some sort of weird, you know, it seems, you know, it's, you know, it's funny. It was the first time I'd ever been to Portland, Oregon was just a few months ago. And, and I felt right away that it was very, very similar, although much bigger than Portland, Maine. It was very, very similar. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And do you plan? I mean, do you plan on staying in Maine? I mean, you're perfectly content there. Um, you never have like feel the pull to go to a bigger town or anything I don't like know. that. I don't know. It's it's a question that you know comes up both in you know private conversations and I get asked it a lot in interviews. And you know, I haven't decided yet, but I guess I better get on it considering that I just been 36. I mean, I could spend <laughs> a good portion of the rest of my my life trying to figure out whether or not I want to go somewhere else. If I were to move, I would definitely go somewhere warm. I, I go to Puerto Rico in the winters to write. Um, and I found that that's actually a really productive move for me. It's sort of like I go to this little island called Vieques, which is off the uh, the east coast of the main island. It's a little tiny place. It's about five miles wide and about 15 miles long. Um, very, very isolated. It used to be a naval bombing range, actually, until nice. 2003. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it it sounds horrible, but one of the one of the very positive upsides of or or side effects of that is now all of that land has reverted to fish and wildlife. The Navy doesn't bomb there anymore, but because they were dropping bombs on it for the better part of fifty years, there's no development there at all. So all the beaches are, you know, they're just as pristine now that they've gotten away the un- unexploded ordnance. They're just as pristine as they were, you know, four hundred years ago. So how, how much is a poor body out there? So, so what does a day look like down there? You just you wake up and you write. You have like a coconut. I mean, what is what is life like down there for you? How, how many like you're out, you're down there for really like a couple of months in, in the winter for a full couple of two or months? three months? Yeah, two three months usually. I was there for closer to three months this year. Um, and yeah, I mean that's pretty much it. It's it's very. It's one of those places, Vieques is one of those places where there's not a whole lot going on. It's not like other Caribbean islands. And so if you go there to work and you decide that you don't want to go out, you don't feel like you're missing much of anything. Um, but conversely, if you do feel like going out on any given night, like you need to get away from yourself or your work, then there is a little bit available to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I get up a lot earlier than I do at home, for one thing, because I tend to go out a lot less. And so, you know, oftentimes up in the sun, and this past time around, I was really cranking. I, I, let's see, I did about 40,000 words of this manuscript in a little over a month. Holy shit. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, it was fucking brutal. I mean, the the analogy that I've used since then in explaining what it felt like was like trying to run a marathon at a five-minute mile pace. You know, it's sort of exhilarating, but it's also likely to be lethal. Right, <laughs> right. So now, were you down there just, you could just go down there solo and, and, and write, or are you with somebody, or... No, I'm by myself. I mean, the whole the whole idea is sort of that, you know, writer's retreat mentality where, like, I pack a single bag, um, and I, you know, I rent this little casita, and uh, I just sit there and write. Very, very few distractions. Wow. Um, you know, I was having a conversation recently, and it was, like, obviously a joking conversation, but it had something to do with prison and how, for a writer, like, I was like, you know, I've had this conversation or this thought where... It's like, you know, to be in prison would not be the worst thing in the world. You can get so much reading done. You know, like, it's true. Because uh, I've got it's so true. much, I've got so many different things going on. I've got a, a 10 month old baby now and it's, it's increasingly right. difficult, you know? So when I hear you tell these stories of being down on this island, like from a work perspective, it's, uh, it sounds sort of ideal, you know, you could really yeah, focus. as a writer, I mean, the prison, the prison analogy is valid, I think. Because as a writer, what do you really need? You need pretty often a cot and some place to work, you know? Yeah. And that's it. And that's exactly what they provide in prison. You get 23 hours a day by yourself. It's perfect. This is an insane, but, it's an insane profession. I mean, that's really the ideal work conditions for this job or for this pursuit <laughs> are prison level conditions. That's what we've arrived at. It's totally true. It's exactly. I wish we were joking, but we're really not. No, that's the thing. Uh, and you know, you know, the, the downside, if it can be said to be a downside to, you know, being your own boss and making your own hours is that, you know, in particular when I go to Puerto Rico and this year it was really pronounced because I was working so much. Um, you know, I, I would go three or four days at a time without actually speaking to anybody. And it's, um, you know, it's sort of an occupational hazard as a writer that, I mean, by its very nature, it's isolating, right? That's what we do. We, we walk ourselves in a room and we, you know, splash around in the shallow end of our own psyches, basically. Um, but when it's that protracted, I mean, I found myself getting weird in a hurry, like to the point where I had to force myself to go out every fourth or fifth night and actually sit down and engage somebody at a bar, like make a point of talking to somebody. Um, and, and like I started referring to it as the shining South. <laughs> well, that's how, that's how I was on the Appalachian trail. I was with my dog. I mean, I'd have conversations with my dog <laughs> that were a little bit too robust, but I get it. And, uh, I think I think that's kind of why I'm doing this show. It's called Other People, uh, and not not by accident. You know, I, you spend so much time staring at your computer screen, and you know it's weird uh, how I, f I mean. A, I feel like I know you because I've read your work and I've read uh, stuff that you've put up on the Nervous Breakdown uh, back in the day, and then you have this this Facebook feed, which to me is so odd because you get these gestalt. Uh, impressions of people that are at least somewhat accurate. Like I sort of knew that you were down in Puerto Rico because there'd be like an odd photo that would show up on my screen. And, right. you know, you get this, this sense. And I, I guess like, you know, part of the impetus here is to get authors talking. And for me, just out of my own curiosity and my need to get out of my own skull to, to start uh, conversations like this, because I think that uh, I, I think authors often are better, con you know, better conversationalists or better company than they get credit for. That, that's my, so? I think so. I mean, I think that the, the, the line is that, you know, you never want to meet your heroes or you don't want to, you know, like what is, uh, the, the old Sartre, I might be mispronouncing his name. Is it Sartre? Is, do you have to do like the Sartre, you know, at the oh, end? You're, you're asking the wrong guy. Man. Yeah. Like, what, what's the, college, <laughs> yeah, right. the, the line is hell is other people. Uh, 
which I, you know, right. it's sort of funny, but, uh, I don't know. I, I, I like to talk to, to writers. I've always had a good time of it. And I mix with so many of them at the nervous breakdown that I kind of found myself thinking like, wow, like, you know, people need to hear, uh, these folks in conversation. And so far it's proven to be the case. You know, the, the calls yeah. that I've done have been great. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, you know, my, my sense, and maybe this is just my, <clears throat> you know, the inferiority complex talking, but my sense is that, um, I wonder if people want to know how the sausage is made at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like, um, and I wonder honestly how compelling it really is. I, I, you know, the work itself, obviously with any luck is compelling, but what goes into it, I wonder about. Yeah, no. And I think that, you know, I think that's exactly right. And I think that, uh, the hope anyway is to have, uh, these conversations be about more than that. Like I'm interested in knowing about your life, you know, like I'm interested in Puerto right. Rico and like, what's going on and how do you make it all work? And, you know, this story that you wrote in first grade, stuff like that, you know. Uh, that's the hard question, man. Yeah. I've tried. That's, that's the stuff that I don't like to talk about. I mean, having it posted on my living room wall is bad enough, <laughs> you know, but it's whatever. It's my mom's. So I had to hang it up. Of course, of course, of course. So uh, tell me, you know, you, you just touched on uh, your education. Like you, you, you said mm. you did not go to college. Is that correct? Uh, I believe the direct quote was I spent 45 minutes at college. 45 minutes. So give me that story. What happened there? Not much, man. I, I, you know, I went to, you know, I had the, the usual sort of, uh, reflexive late teen urge to get as far away from home as possible. Um, and it wasn't very considered. It was just felt like what you did. Um, and so I went to Clemson university in South Carolina, actually, which, you know, aside from the moon, is probably about as far from home, both in terms of geography and, and, you know, how a place feels as you can get from where I grew up. Sure. And I didn't last very long. I was there for the wrong reasons. And, and, uh, you know, I'd like to pretend, especially from this side of the divide, like that it was all deliberate and I knew that I could become what I wanted to become without going to college, but that's not really true. Um, I just didn't belong there. And, and, uh, once I left, you know, um, I just started working and traveling and, College was really the furthest thing from my mind. I never really gave it another consideration after that. Where did you I go? Never, Where did you go traveling? Um, well, I came home and I moved to Florida for a while. I lived in Naples on the, the Gulf Coast for a bit. Um, and then I went over to Europe and I traveled around to the backpacking thing, you know, shoestring budget, a couple thousand dollars in my pocket and just go. Um, and then I came home again and then I went to, I spent some time in Cyprus in the Middle East. Jesus, what was that uh, like? Amazing. Amazing. And in fact, um, you know, it was one of those experiences that I always wanted to draw on for my fiction and I never really found the spot in what I was working on until now. The manuscript I'm working on now is able to incorporate what was really sort of a formative experience for me uh, in my 20s, which I find, you know, those sorts of experiences where you really are sort of awed by what's going on around you seem to me at least to be increasingly rare the older I get. Um, but I spent some time in the Sinai, um, in Egypt, and it was just, uh, I forget who it was. It was a very, very long quote that I read years ago about how, um, you know, the sense of, ha- of coming home to a place that you've never been to before, um, where, you, you know, the place in me, you're immediately from with the place. Uh, and that's how I felt going to the Sinai. It was just gorgeously desolate desert. Um, and, and I just loved it there. Do you but believe, do you believe in past life stuff? I mean, is that anything that registers with you or do you just think it was 
Not really, no. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah, I'm kind of a cash and carry guy when it comes to that sort of thing. And I was raised Catholic, so. Me too. As soon as you... <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I always joke I'm a recovering Catholic, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I always, I always say I'm a lapsed Catholic because you're never, you know. To me, Catholicism is more like a cultural identity than a religious one. Um, and so, you know, it's like saying, you know, I was raised white, but I, you know, I decided to jettison that. Like, you don't really get rid of it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, um, I, I tend to be kind of a cash and carry guy these days when it comes to that sort of stuff. I'm not all that mystical. Uh, but, no, I mean, it was a very secular but very powerful experience for me. So, and now, how did you time. wind up there? Like, what was it that drew you? Was it a book that you'd read, or did somebody you knew, had they gone, you know, you know, had they gone there, or was it just random? What was the... No, it was a friend of mine was teaching in Cyprus, actually. Um, and I went and spent time with her there, and, and it's a great... You know, I don't know if you know the geography at all, but Cyprus is a fantastic jumping-off point for pretty much all the Middle East. I mean, there's there's very little there that isn't that's any further away than an hour by plane. Um, and so, you know, we did some traveling and and uh, using Cyprus as a base. And you know, and I've always said that I would go back to the Sinai if I ever had the chance, and I've had the chance, and I haven't actually gone back yet. But I think I will get back there eventually. Maybe next you know, winter. The yeah, right. I, I could actually instead of going to Puerto Rico, but you know, I can't really explain off the cuff why it was that I responded so powerfully to, to that place, but it's, it's, uh, it stuck with me and that was, you know, 10 years ago now. Um, so I, after 10 years, I finally figured out a way to incorporate it into something that I'm working on, which I'm really glad about. So now tell me a little bit about this book then. I mean, can you, can you give us any, any hints or is it, what's it about? What's it, what's it called? Anything? You know, I don't have a title yet, um, and I found my experience so, so far, and granted, it's a very small sample size, only two books, but my experience so far is that the easier the writing is for me, the more difficult it is to come up with a title for whatever reason, um, or the better that I feel about the writing itself, the more difficult it is to come up with a title, and so no title yet, but it's, you know, at its at its core, it's a love story. Um, it's very much about these two characters who... Um, I've had an on-again, off-again romance over the course of 20 years. Um, and it sort of comes to an apex for them within the uh, the context of the story, within the chronology of the story. And it's very sort of disjointed, very episodic, um, jumps around chronologically. Um, well, one of the themes that I, I think there are probably four themes that are at work here, which may be, you know, three too many, may prove to be. Um, but one of the things that I've become really fixated on working on this book uh, is the notion of um, quote-unquote true stories or real stories and how we as a culture are sort of obsessed and fixated on those. Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about, for example, um, uh, the James Fry thing, the Million Little Pieces. Sure. Um, and And what it was that angered people so much about the fact that he you know, I mean, you call it what you want, embellishment, lying, whatever, but that there were parts of that story that simply weren't factual. Uh, and why it was that, that learning that suddenly, for those people, for those readers, suddenly uh, stripped the story of any meaning, meaning that it had, any relevance that it had to their lives. And we're talking about people who, you know, presumably felt as though their lives were saved by this book. You know, can you imagine how many people read that in rehab? Um, yeah. And I just had a conversation with a guy about it the other day who, who read the book in rehab, and he said, you know, what he said was what I'm aiming for when I'm writing, which is, 
and what Wallace talked about, which was trying to give somebody else a sense of being somewhat less alone, you know? Sure. And I felt like there's no question that that book did that for probably hundreds of thousands of people. And then when they found out that he only spent a weekend in jail and not three months, all of a sudden that power was stripped away from the story. And I, and I, and I wonder why. Um, so that's one of the themes that I'm, that I'm working on in this book too. And it's, you know, it edges, it, it brushes up against, um, what's the bullshit genre, creative nonfiction, I think is what we call it these days. Um, you know, where you can't decide whether you're writing a novel or a memoir, but you're upfront about it as opposed to what, what uh, James Fry did. Uh, you just, you know, you acknowledge that a lot of this is autobiographical, but some of it has been fictionalized or tidied up or whatever. And, and that's sort of what I'm doing, but I'm doing it number one, because it's just what I need to be writing about right now. But number two, with purpose, with the, the idea of exploring this, this concept of what constitutes a true story and, and what that means and, and why it's so significant to us, you know, in the early 21st century, as opposed to, you know, one of the arguments that I make in the book, or one of the arguments that one of the main characters makes is that almost all of us, or I, you know, I'd even go so far as to say all of us, when we're children, we fall in love with and believe in completely made up shit, right? Uh, we don't demand true stories. I mean, can you imagine a kid stomping out on story time because he finds out that the wild things are made up? You know? Right, right. I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. That, to me, it doesn't make any sense that we reach a certain point where all of a sudden those priorities shift completely. They do a complete 180, and all of a sudden true stories are what really captivate us and everything else is bunk. Um, and my sense is that a lot of people... <clears throat> um, could uh, have really meaningful experiences reading fiction if they gave themselves a chance to do it. Um, so anyway, that's that's one of the themes that's at work in this book. Along well, no, it's fascinating you say that because I find that my own taste or my own reading habits have sort of shifted in that direction in, in the sense that, you know, I find myself reading a lot of history. I find myself reading mm -hmm. a lot of political biography. I find myself reading a lot of uh, true crime or, uh, some memoir. Like I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm reading right now, uh, in the garden of beasts, that Eric Larson book about the ambassador, uh, in Berlin in the early 1930s and like his experience of, uh, you know, watching the third Reich rise and coming to realize how, uh, evil it was. And I, you know, I, I'm, I analyze myself trying to figure out why that is. And I don't know, but like when you speak about that, the hunger for the truth or whatever it is, I think that, Maybe it's an outgrowth of how much bullshit there is on the TV and uh, in radio and all that kind of stuff. And you're just trying to to get a sense of history and what actually happened, you know. Could be. I mean, do you do you? I'm assuming there was a time when you read primarily fiction, then. Yeah. No. I mean, in my 20s, that was like pretty much all that I read, and I just started gravitating towards this stuff. And you know, it's it's just what what was what was kind of holding my attention and it's it's what I was most interested in. I don't know why I've, I've really gotten into history. I like to know. I like to be, uh, what's the word? You know, it's, if we don't know history, then we're doomed to repeat it, uh, that whole thing and, and trying to have some sort of context so that I can watch, uh, I think especially like a political and geopolitical stuff with some context and, uh, wrap my head around it because I feel like what I'm seeing and hearing is, uh, not something that I can believe, you know, necessarily. Right. Which is, you know, that's totally valid and important from, from my perspective, you know, it, I think that one of the biggest problems that we face as a as a society and as constituents, as um, you know, as a 
represented in democracy is is that we have no sense of history. We don't know what happened last week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's no context within which to place what we're facing now. And that's important. That context is important. So the, to that end, I think that reading that sort of thing is vitally important. Well, but I, you know, I wonder too, if, if you're sort of tacking toward those, those kinds of books now has anything to do with the fact that you write fiction. In other words, do you think maybe subconsciously you, you tacked away from reading fiction because it sort of uh, leaches into your own work? Yeah, you know, maybe, you know, it's like, it's because it's weird, because when I do sit down to write, I, I tend to write fiction, and uh, I'm kind of at a crossroads where I'm thinking, you know, what to write next, I've been struggling for a while, and uh, there's a part of me that's like, should I do humor, there's a part of me that's like, should I just go whole hog into uh, another novel, uh, there's a part of me that wonders if uh, some sort of, uh, you know, Eric Larson's book, for instance, like, you know, it's like historical narrative, nonfiction, where he really finds good characters and really tells these great stories. Like, I don't know if you ever read devil in the white city, uh, no. the book about the Chicago world's fair, but just terrific storytelling, uh, you know, where he, he kind of goes back in and does great period detail and does great, uh, research, but also does a great narrative. Um, yeah, see that, that would be the tough part for me. It, it sounds like you're considering maybe trying your hand at that. I think the tough part for me is that's a lot of goddamn work. To do yeah. that reason. <laughs> right. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And having to get shit straight, mm-hmm. you kidding? That's <laughs> not for me. No, yeah, it's it's definitely adds a layer to it, but uh, yeah, it's you know it's all fascinating that the whole like hunger for reality, or I mean, I feel like I'm getting into David Shields territory by saying that, but I, I think there's some truth to what he's <laughs> after. And people, I just think that the culture that we live in now is just so filled with static that. Uh, it dis- it's disorienting, and people just want to be told the truth, you know. Or they- well, it is a rel- it is a relatively recent phenomenon, though, isn't it? I mean, fifty years ago, people did memoirs even exist, really? No, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that they did. And but- and you know, on top of that, I guess what I'm driving at is I understand, and and you know, I count myself among the people who read these sorts of books. And are interested in them, but what I wonder is whether or not we ever, you know, whether or not it's ever possible to get the truth. Um, you know, it gets pretty sticky pretty quickly, and, and I'm probably not intellectually or educationally equipped to really address those those topics outside of uh, the context of fiction. But I, you know, I, I guess the point that I'm driving at in the book, and then also in this conversation, is that I, I'm not convinced that we ever do get a true story, and so to to become indignant because somebody fudged a few details in a book to me seems disingenuous. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very, that whole story of how, you know, specifically speaking to James Fry, how he, uh, was just trying to get a book deal. It seems like to me, uh, right. And it, and it was right. like memoirs are selling now. And it's like, fine. I mean, I, I sort of get that frustration where it's like, okay. Right. And you know, and I certainly don't. And whenever I have this conversation with people and it, it's happened a lot lately because it's what I'm working on. They say, don't get me wrong. I mean, the guy seems like a great A asshole, you know? I mean, put that aside for a second and consider the fact that, to my knowledge, he shopped this book around as a novel initially, right? Right. And he, and he didn't have any takers. So, you know, repackage it as a memoir. It's a smart move as long as you, you know, are actually factual about it. Uh, and then all of a sudden, not only did he have a taker, but it became a huge, huge book. Uh, you know, so in a sense, the very people who were so outraged and indignant at the fact that this wasn't entirely factual were the ones who dictated that it happened that way in the first place because they wouldn't have bought it in the form of a novel. Right. They didn't have paid for it. And so the publisher wouldn't publish it. 
Well, it's fascinating. And I don't, you know, I don't think my sense of it is that I, I don't think it's possible to write uh, a memoir that's entirely factual. I, 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 I mean, unless you have like total recall and I certainly I don't. No, I can't remember anything. I, I really do have a terrible memory. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine that I went to high school with and he was like bringing up all these old stories and these old people. Like, I don't remember people until like right. my memory is seriously jarred. And these are people that I saw every day, you know, it's just, it's sort of freaky, you know? <laughs> and it makes it tough to be in a relationship too. My experience has been that having a relationship with somebody who has even a decent memory, because I'm the same way that you are. My memory's for shit. Um, you know, you never have any ground to stand on if you're having a conflict because first of all, you don't remember anything. In fact, and as a consequence of that, you have no idea whether or not you're being told the truth when they recount things that happened two or three months ago. Right. You know? So what, so what's our problem? We just so self-involved that like we just <laughs> block everyone else out. <laughs> I think it could be that and the drinking. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, talk to me a little bit about like how you work. Are you, are you super disciplined or do you work in these like binges over, you know, two or three months in Puerto Rico or is it an everyday thing? Kind of like a monastic, like what's the situation? I try to be disciplined and some days, you know, I go, I go for stretches where I work every day and I work well and, and I'm very productive. And then I go through other stretches where, um, you know, I may be trying to get, to get work done. Um, but the majority of what I'm doing is probably not going to survive. You know, I may be putting words on paper, but they're not very good. And I usually have a sense of that even while I'm doing it. But I, you know, the more that I work and the more time goes by, the more I'm not comfortable with those periods, but I understand their necessity. I understand that they need to happen. Um, and I, and that I have to sort of be as gentle with myself as I can be, um, cause forcing it avails nobody, anything. Um, it doesn't make for good writing. It doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't make me feel better about myself as an artist. And so, uh, there's really no point in it. It's better to go do something. I mean, if it's really not happening, it's better to just get up and go for a run or go have a drink or go, hang out with friends or whatever, even if it's been five or six days since I've gotten something done. Um, but so, you know, I'll go through a six month period where I, I'm very productive and I'm really happy with what I'm doing. And then for whatever reason, it just shuts off. Um, and whereas 10 years ago, I would have forced my way through that. Now I'm more likely to just sort of, uh, use that time for something else. And I find that if I do that, I usually come back to the work. Uh, more quickly and with more energy than I would otherwise. Um, but I'm also not the sort of writer who needs to have a particular space or a particular time of day or a particular pen or any of that stuff. I don't, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not superstitious about the process at all. Can you write in public? I can. Yeah. Um, although that's sort of a recent phenomenon too. Like I'm not, a, I'm not generally the coffee shop kind of guy and writing in bars really doesn't work out either. Um, <laughs> too many distractions. Right. And, you know, and, and I got over the notion that I could write while drinking a long time ago, too. I mean, I think all of us go through our, our uh, beat phase in our early 20s. And, you know, you imagine that uh, everything that you're doing while you're under the influence of one thing or another is brilliant. Unfortunately, <clears throat> um, I got over that notion. I'm, yeah, you, I'm more like, you wake up in the morning and pull that bar napkin out of your pocket and it's just uh, <laughs> it's always less well, than inspiring. Sometimes, sometimes you can find, you know, tidbits. But in terms of actual, you know, line by line writing, it's garbage. And I remember, I think it was Ginsburg who talked about, you know, that aesthetic among all the guys that he hung out with and guys that he, you know, sort of had a creative uh, ferment with during those years. 
and they were all popped up on poppers and drunk all the time. And, and he realized that he just couldn't do it. Uh, and he, and rather than just succumbing to that and, and giving up the writing, he, he gave up all of the recreational stuff and decided he was going to hunker down and, and actually be a working artist. Um, and these days I certainly feel a lot more like Ginsburg in that regard. Like I can't, uh, uh, I might have insights while I'm, uh, engaged in, in chemical recreation that might be of use. Like you jot something down and, and expand upon it later, but I wouldn't sit down and write a chapter while drawing. It's just, it'd be pointless. Well, no. And you know, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, two books on the road and, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. When you read the literary biography, uh, of Kerouac and, and Hunter Thompson, you find that, or at least in the, in the account that I read, uh, or the accounts that I read that Kerouac wrote on the road while staying with a, I believe he was staying with a girlfriend or a girl who was his friend. And she, it was like a two or three week binge and he was sober and she was bringing him tea and hot soup. And he literally sat there in the chair for this marathon session writing this book, but I, I don't think he was on Benzedrine. Uh, that's he wasn't record. doing the Benzedrine thing? Not on that book, which is like, there's huh. a clarity to it. I mean, I think he had been working on it or, you know, kind of turning it over in his mind for a long time. And he certainly did have, you know, books that he wrote where he was under the influence. But that book, oh, yeah. he was not under the influence. And I want to say the same is true of Fear and Loathing, where, you know, Thompson went down to Las Vegas and... Um, you know, probably wasn't as, as fucked up as, uh, you know, he would like, uh, he would lead us to believe in his writing, but no. then came back and no. wrote that. And I, I think he was clear as a bell when he wrote that or, or as probably, close to it as I would he... believe that about Thompson. And, you know, the thing about Kerouac, if you read, you know, if you go deeper into his, into his work, something like Big Sur, for example, which was, you know, late stage, bad Elvis Kerouac, really, really bad. In terms of, <laughs> you know, he wasn't, he wasn't just under the influence. I mean, he was beyond the influence. He, he, have you read Big Sur? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a while ago. I want to say uh, one of my grad school professors, Aram Saroyan, wrote a foreword for the for that one. Is that the one where he's oh like, really? He's trying to sober up, and he's or or he maybe he's really just hammered. There's one where he's I think just writing straight drunk, you know. Or, uh, but refresh my memory. Well, my, my my memory of it, and it's been a few years, was that he was trying to sober up, and he had gone up to the mountains to do so. Right. And was sort of relying on the kindness of friends who had a place up there. You know, the, the old uh, the old classic alcoholic strategy of, like, removing yourself from the alcohol, right? Sure. Um, and so he'd gone up in the mountains and, and suffered from, like, horrifying DTs and was having, you know, uh, waking nightmares about children being murdered and buried in the woods and just horrifying stuff. And it was, it was fascinating, but it wasn't very good writing. Right. Um, and it wasn't a novel. It was just sort of a, it was sort of a nightmare scape. Um, and so, you know, comparing to draft that with on the road, it's, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're two entirely different books and in terms of, you know, their importance, obviously, <clears throat> but also just in terms of readability, and whether or not they should even exist. I mean, you know, I'm sure plenty of people would, would argue that Big Sur is an important book in its way, but to me it wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't what I was going to Kerouac for, and at that time I was a huge fan of his. Well, yeah, yeah, no, me too, and I think that there's a clarity in uh, some of his work that's lacking in other other books, you know, but uh, I guess there's value in stuff to different people for different reasons, but I just thought, you know, the the lore around him, and especially with On the Road and that whole, you know, whatever 300 foot ream of paper, uh, you yeah. know, you just assume that he was on something. And, 
you know, I think when I was in college, that made it more fun to read in a sense, you know, thinking the thought that the author, um, well, you know, it's, it's funny that you bring it up because I just, I guess I just always assumed that he was on a Ben's dream binge when he wrote that. I mean, you know, writing in two weeks, barely sleeping, um, you know, a single scroll of paper. It just, I guess I just assumed, um, I feel like I feel like I read that he was, but I guess I just assumed that. Well, maybe you know what you, you may be right. I, the book that I read, and I forget, you know, I might be uh, forgetting the title. Once again, you've got two guys with terrible memories talking here, so like, <laughs> trying to remember stuff that we read years ago. But uh, you know, it was a, it was by the editor who edited Visions of Cody, I believe, which was one of his later works, if I'm remembering correctly. And uh, you know, he had. What I thought was a pretty astute uh, psychoanalyst uh, or psychoanalysis of, of Kerouac, and he talked about the writing of On the Road, and I guess had been a young editor, a young assistant editor, and I believe was you know had some sort of proximity to that, and that was his account of it. But you know, people have different takes, and you know, who's to say if a guy's popping Benzedrine? I mean, it's like you'd have to almost be right there at the key, at the typewriter with him sure. to know. So, sure. uh, you know, it's fascinating, and you know, I guess while we're on the topic. Uh, before I let you go, I'm, I'm curious to know, aside from, uh, you know, Wallace and a guy like Kerouac, are there other writers that have been big for you? Like in the past oh, and, sure. and currently, like who, who, who do you count on your, on your, uh, short list of, of heroes? Oh, geez. Um, certainly PC Boyle. Um, let's see right now. God, uh, George Saunders. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love George Saunders. Um, who I actually I had a chance to meet uh, a couple of years ago, which was you know I think that that all of us as as writers, <clears throat> you know, at first and foremost we're book geeks, and so for me to be able to, you know, one of the one of the really nice fringe benefits of being a published writer, from my perspective, is having the the opportunity from time to time to meet these people, because to to me still, I mean George Saunders was a mythical creature until I actually laid eyes on the guy, you know. Um, he seems like a gentle mythical creature, sort of like a, like Mr. Tumnus from Mind the Witch in the Wardrobe <laughs> or something. <laughs> I'm sure he'd appreciate that, actually. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. I, I met him at uh, uh, the Academy of Arts and Letters in New York when they, they were nice enough to, to bestow a little award on me. And uh, we were talking at the 11 o'clock cocktail hour, which, you know, that alone... It's like these people know what they're doing. 11 a.m. cocktail hour. And then afterwards, uh, when I was given my award, when I was coming back to my seat, and, uh, and he put his hand up for a big high five as I was coming back, and I was like, you know, Damn. this guy, he, he does it right. Who, um, now, what award was this? I mean, what award was this? Uh, that was uh, the Metcalf Award from, from the Academy of Arts and Letters. It's, uh, it's for a writer, a young writer of great promise, I believe is how it goes. Um, Damn. So no pressure there. Yeah, um, yeah, right. Nothing to live up to. You, you got it. <laughs> well, that's the thing to worry about, right? I mean, especially early career, and if you're if you're young in terms of writing books, it's like um, at a certain point you get to live on the promise. So now, who, who, now who, like, who gave you that? Who I mean, did, did did someone submit you for that? Did your editor submit you for it, or did it just happen out of the blue? They have that was completely out of the blue from my perspective. I just got a phone call one day, um, and I I think that it's. Uh, you know, they have some sort of internal process, but I know that um, um, when I got there, Joy Williams was seated next to me at the uh, at the luncheon, and it turns out that she was she and Alan Garganis were great champions of mine on the selection committee, um, which was news to me. 
but also, you know, insanely gratifying. I mean, sure. Uh, I'm a fan of both of theirs. And, and, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's really heady stuff for me. And I don't, I don't think there'll ever be a time when it's not, you know? Um, so yeah, it was pretty tremendous, but, but in terms of, you know, getting back to, to the writers who are big for me, uh, I'll tell you what, and, and this may feel a, a bit, um, I don't know, what would the word be? Nepotism, I guess, in a weird way, but, uh, but Johnny Edison, I mean, best of here, an amazing, amazing book. I'm sure you read it. You know what I have? I have not gotten a chance. Yeah. You have to understand yeah, my, my schedule's insane, but, uh, it's, it's on, it's on my shelf. Johnny, I'm sorry, buddy. I'm going to read it. <laughs> you know, he was nice. He was nice enough to send me an advanced copy. And, uh, this was last year, not this past winter, but the winter before. Um, and I was absolutely blown away. Uh, and the success that he's enjoying now, he deserves every bit of it. I mean, you know, he's one of those guys too, who I look at the, you know, the work itself is amazing. And then his tirelessness. God, yeah. It's, just, it's, it's, it's sort of instructive, you know, it's like, if this is, and his gratitude, you know, if, if this is what you get to do, if this is what you get to get up in the morning and do, um, without necessarily having to worry about anything else, not having to worry about putting food on the table, not having to worry about uh, supporting your family, this is your gig, then you should wake up with a smile every day. And, and he seems to be one of those guys who does. And that to me is, uh, you know, hugely instructive. Well, yeah, there's there, there not much pretense there, which I, you know, I always appreciate. And, um, you know, yeah, the guy's got, you know, this like manic energy that, that really works for him. I mean, and just it a also makes me sort of hate him a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like, he's, he's naturally got, I, I, I honestly find myself jealous of people who have like ADHD because, you know, for all of its for all of its side difficulties, these people have an incredible energy level. They pop up out of bed after like three and a half hours of sleep and are like sharp as a tack. And, uh, you know, that has its upsides, especially when you're trying to be creative. But I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's got downsides that I'm not aware of. But Evison is a force of nature, you know, for sure. Yeah, it seems to be working for him. Well, it's been great talking to you, man. I wish you all the best with uh, the novel that you're working on. And it's fun to get to connect, you know, after all these uh, years of, of sort of, you know, knowing each other via the Internet. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, take care. Enjoy uh, the summer up in Maine. And let's talk again once that, uh, that book comes out. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Yep. Take care. Okay, there you have it. Ron Curry Jr., ladies and gentlemen. Uh, what a good guy. What a good writer. Really going to be interested to see what this third book is and I would I would anticipate that it's going to be something very compelling. I would be very shocked if it wasn't very compelling. It's going to be very compelling. The guy's incapable of writing a dull sentence and he's one to watch. Uh thank you once again for listening. If you have thoughts on the show, I'm interested in hearing them. Tell me about what you think. Tell me about your life. Write to me via email. The address is letters at other people pod Dot com At the front end of the show, talking about New York, I forgot to mention I did have a couple of interesting celebrity sightings. Uh, I think I took a spinning class. I do spinning from time to time. I go on, you know, go into one of those rooms and ride one of those stationary bicycles to loud music. And uh, I think I took a spinning class with Jenna Bush. I believe that happened. I was looking across the room thinking to myself, is that Jenna Bush? I was sweating. My heart was thundering in my chest. It was a very uh, intense uh, cardiovascular, uh, environment. And I was looking at her 
and she was i think she was think she was spinning she was working really hard and it's a little bit embarrassing to actually be watching somebody that intensively as they're exercising and i don't mean to sound creepy but i was just watching her because i was trying to figure out is that her and uh, it's sort of like when you see somebody jogging and it sort of embarrasses you there's very few people i would argue that look good that look attractive while jogging or while engaged in some sort of extreme cardiovascular exercise type situation so i saw jenna bush uh, i didn't speak to her obviously i think that was her maybe it wasn't her maybe it was just a person who looked like jenna bush riding a stationary bicycle and then later that same day uh, i believe i was in the west village was i in the west village i believe i saw patty smith musician punk rock icon and uh what is it national book award winning author she wrote that memoir uh, about her Maplethorpe years, her friendship with Robert Maplethorpe, a big hit. I think it's called Just Kids. Patty Smith saw her walking around, passed right by her. No, it was her. No doubt about it. Didn't say anything to her. I never say anything. I don't think you should say anything unless you really have something to say. Anyway, I say that as I'm sitting here talking into a microphone by myself in a room thinking I have something to say. I'll be back soon with another show. Remember, folks, two new shows a week. Stay tuned, and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks.